Hi there, I'm Leslie Dolphin. Welcome to the latest podcast from Suffolk Money, supported by Kingsfleet. This week, we bring you a fascinating insight into funerals. My colleague Colin Lowe has been chatting to someone who knows the industry inside out. She joined the profession when she was just 16. And while we all accept that funerals aren't always an easy thing for family and friends to discuss, she is in no doubt that it's something that we all should do. Here's Colin to explain more. So today I'm speaking with Anne Beckett Allen, who is director of Rosedale Funeral Homes, uh, who have seven branches across Suffolk and Norfolk. And we'll find out a little bit from you, Anne, where those are situated. But um, I guess the first thing is just to ask, how did you end up being involved in the funeral business? Yeah, so I was kind of born into it. So I'm a fifth generation funeral director. My dad was a funeral director and I kind of grew up with his bleeper going off on Christmas Day and then you know that was it he was he was gone from the Christmas dinner table for the rest of the afternoon um but I always had huge respect for what he did and and as a family we always kind of were really open talking about death and dying and you know what happens and when I left school I had absolutely no idea really what I wanted to do and dad was just like well come and work for me and I think I think at the time he's like you know I'll I'll pay you 50 pound a week or something <laughs> so I decided to come and give it a go and yeah and I've been working with bereaved people ever since. I think it's probably important for us to say as we walk through this we will obviously be dealing with the issues regarding um, death and being with deceased people and so I recognize that there might be some people who listen to this that might be a little uncomfortable um but I think some of the things we want to talk through were really to just bring some of these things out into the open because I think people maybe have a natural reluctance to think about these circumstances, about themselves or about their loved ones. Yeah, some people, do you know what? It's really interesting because um, you either get a mix, you either get people who go, oh, you're a funeral director. Oh, tell me about this. Oh, I've always wanted to know this. And they've got all of these questions that they want me to answer. And then you have other people who almost like take two steps backwards and, you know, think somehow that you're the the, the doctor of death. And um, yeah, and, and some people don't want to talk about funerals at all. And it's almost like there's this fear that somehow we're we're tempting fate by talking about it. And we just kind of like want to put blinkers on and bury our head in the clouds and think, oh, it's not going to happen to me. But, you know, of course, we know it's going to happen to all of us sometime. So when I left school, um, like a lot of traditional funeral directors at the time, the family business was builders and funeral directors. Yes, that's what, that always struck me as a little odd, but I suppose... Yeah, well, the reason, the reason for that is, is because the, the labourers used to do the graves. Um, and of course, the carpenters used to make the coffins. So my granddad was a carpenter and my dad was a carpenter and my brother's a carpenter. So um, they would make the coffins in, in the workshop. So I kind of went in as Girl Friday. I didn't necessarily, you know, go into work in the funeral department. I just did all of the, you know, making the coffee and doing the filing and emptying the bins and that kind mm. of thing to start off with. And then um, there was a point at which they decided to separate out the businesses. And my dad had a secretary 
And um, so she was given the choice. She was said, you know, do you want to work for the building company or the funeral company? And she chose the building company, which basically then by default, then I went to work as a secretary in the in the funeral department. And when I arranged my first ever funeral, I think I was probably only like 16, 17. And it was because a family had come in, and there was nobody else there. Right. Um, and and rather than turn the family away, I think they'd had a journey. There was some reason or they, they couldn't wait um, for the funeral director to come back. So I sat there with a blank form and I, you know, I knew the form backwards because I typed up all the information from it millions of times. And I thought, well, I can ask these questions. And I just sat with them and, you know, chatted and asked the questions and, and actually found it was really rewarding. And then, you know, to then be able to put see the whole funeral coming together you know to to phone the minister and phone the crematorium and 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 send the coffin order out to the workshop and then the family come and visit the chapel of rest and all of these things kind of coming together um to culminate on the, the day of the funeral and then the family sent me a thank you letter to say you know oh. how kind I've been and how much they appreciated my help and it was like oh that's so you know it, and it just felt like such a privilege Mm. it must be both a very rewarding role but also there's a massive amount of responsibility that rests on your shoulders in organizing it because you only have one chance to get it right yeah yeah and um you know I'm not going to lie it sometimes you do wake up in the night in a hot sweat thinking did I remember to do that um not so much now, but you know, in the early days, yeah, definitely. And I've been known to get up in the in the night and go down to the office, you know, just to to check details. Mm. Um, you know, and sometimes things do go wrong because we are all human. But we have, I think, the most important thing is that you learn from your mistakes mm. and you put checklists and you know and safety nets in place to stop things from happening. I also, um, I'm really privileged because I teach. Um, funeral directors so I train funeral directors across the country um, and at the moment I've got students in Northern Ireland and students down in Somerset um, and, and we have a module where we where we study disaster planning so I'm quite lucky because they all share with me all of their mistakes and all of the things that have gone wrong on their funerals so I have the benefit of learning from everybody's mistakes <laughs> as well not just my own. <laughs> but you've studied yourself very young I understand is that right before yeah you... I did yeah. yeah yeah I started studying for my diploma in funeral director when I was 16 um I took my exams when I was 17 um but you they you they weren't allowed to award it until you're 18 so I had to wait until my 18th birthday before they would send me my certificate yeah and it was really unusual then to have female funeral directors as well yeah so tell us a little bit about how Rosedale came about Okay, so um, I'd worked in the family funeral directing business um, and then that was sold to um, and to another um, family business in Canada, actually. Um, and I was really privileged to be able to go out to Vancouver and I learned all their systems and then came back and I was their software trainer um, across the UK. So I used to travel around all different funeral homes um, and when they when they bought new businesses, then I was one of the people that would go out and, and train the staff. Um, and then the Canadian parent company went bankrupt. And um, so after 10 years, 
I then found myself working for this company that was owned by venture capitalists because they sold off their UK funeral homes to these these venture capitalists. And almost overnight, the care and compassion started to be stripped out. And I remember going to a board meeting. I'd found this most beautiful book for bereaved children. And I thought, do you know what? This would be amazing to give this to our families. And I took it to the board meeting. I was so excited about it. And they just said, well, have you no idea how that's going to impact our bottom line? And they just had no care at all about caring for the bereaved families. All they cared about was, was the bottom line and profits. And, and I remember going away from that meeting thinking, this is not where I want to be anymore. And my husband said to me, you know, why don't, why don't you start up on your own? And I, and I thought about it and I'm like, but I've been 10 years giving of myself to this business, building this business up, making it, you know, really the best that I can. And then I would spend the next 10 years of my life destroying what I'd built up. And that kind of felt like it was going to be a waste of my life. And, you know, the net effect was going to be neutral. So I really struggled with that. Um, and so I started looking around thinking what else I could do and actually nearly became a midwife, nearly went back to train to be a midwife. And he just said to me, he sat me down one day and he said, look, Anne, they're destroying this business and they're going to destroy it with or without you. You are good at looking after the bereaved families. You need to get out and you need to do this again. And so I started looking around for premises and it was almost like fate conspired because the very next day I drove past this beautiful house on Victoria Road that was called Rosedale House. And I'm like, do you know what? That would make a really good funeral home. Um, yeah. And yeah, the rest is history, I guess. Well, <laughs> let's look at that history then. So that was when? When was that first place that, started? That was in 2004. Right. Um, I had to wait because I had a restrictive covenant so I had to sit that out before I was allowed to be a director of the business um, but um, I was so lucky because two of the funeral directors that I've worked with in DIS both phoned me independently and said you know we'd really like to come and work for you we don't want to stay here and it had become such a you know a, a horrible place to work mm. that um, and then when when staff in the other market towns found out they would you know they would phone up and they'd say look you've opened in this and it's going really well can you not come and open in Bungie we really don't want to you know we don't want to stop serving the bereaved but we can't do it well from here mm. so um you know then we'd open in Bungie and then the same happened in Attleboro um yeah and so now we've got four funeral homes in Norfolk and we've got three in Suffolk we're with Bungie, Beckles and Halesworth and we're in Windham, Attleboro. And our most recent one was in, in Halston, which we opened during the pandemic. Mm. Now, how was it opening during the pandemic when that must have um, been challenging? <laughs> yeah, being a funeral director during the pandemic was really interesting times. Mm. Um, and I got drafted onto, we had this um, Norfolk kind of um, disaster group where it, I think they called it the Death Mortality Advisory Board. Um, and I was part of that where we, um, you know, we would have the, the coroner and, and the registrar and, and the people from the, the hospital. And we would all kind of meet once a week and, and, and plan what was going to happen and how we were going to share resources and support everybody and, you know, what we were going to do 
when the you know at, at the peak of the crisis mm. and yeah and while all that was going on um we also had the opportunity um to open in Hulse and there was a funeral directors that actually had decided to close um but my dad's pension fund owned the property so it was kind of like well we you know we already had access to the property there'd already been a funeral director there and actually enabled us to space out some of our staff because at the time we had this kind of two meter rule mm. and it actually enabled us to to put some of our staff in this who'd been working from home into a funeral home because during the pandemic we had to split the team and have half of us we we would do like two weeks in the office and then two weeks out of the office to try mm. and to try and kind of make sure that the whole team didn't go down with COVID at the same time. Mm. I think the hardest thing was because the rules kept changing. So you would put a funeral in place for a family and they would be quite settled about the fact that, you know, perhaps I don't actually remember now what the numbers were. No, there were some were. odd numbers, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so you, but they would be quite settled with it. And then the numbers would change and, and then you could only have 15. So you would then have to unpick everything that you'd done and sort of put it together again and then rethink and say, okay, do you still want to do this? Do you still, you know, six people can come now and actually there's eight grandchildren. Mm. Um, so none of them are going to be able to come now do you still want to actually have a funeral service? Do they, you know, do they want, you had people sitting at home watching funeral services online. You had people standing outside two metres apart from one another. And it was really, really hard. And it was hard. And I remember one day, and I'll, I'll never forget this lady. She, her and her husband had shielded and um, they'd literally not been out during the pandemic at all they'd shielded at home and the only time this man went out but it still makes me emotional now he'd gone to get his covid vaccine and he'd gone in a taxi to get his vaccine and he caught covid and died oh dear <laughs> and i remember taking the first call from this lady and she phoned me up and said my husband's died and i spoke to her and you know i i took all the details down and when i put the phone i just sat and cried i just felt so sorry for her I think families who taught found it perhaps easier. Um, families that communicated well um, and perhaps families who planned ahead. So, you know, if you'd already planned ahead and you planned your funeral, um, then you might think, oh, OK, that's, in, you know, because if you talk, then you think, well, OK, well, you know, if I die now, I won't be able to have that dancing band or you know whatever it is that you know people had planned for their funeral and so people who talked you know did revise plans and and I remember one family and they decided not to have a funeral service at all but they each honored their father or their grandfather um in their very own way so and one of them went for a cycle ride um and remembered her dad you know, on this cycle ride and was really mindful about it. Um, somebody else in the family was listening to his favourite music at the time that um, they knew that we were taking him to the crematorium. Um, somebody else was in the greenhouse, um, you know, set, setting seeds because that was, you know, a memory that they had 
with their dad and so they all remembered him mm. in their own special way without having a funeral service so some people were really able to communicate well and talk about it and kind of embrace the changes and maybe even dare I say did something more meaningful mm. than they might otherwise have done mm. but it was allocating specific time with a specific purpose so as you say it was almost transferring that time that would have been spent you know at the crematorium at the church or yes. whatever um in another way but yeah. it was quite purposeful and meaningful whereas I guess probably what we what we might be finding is people who weren't didn't feel able to do anything and just had this void of not really being able to say goodbye in a specific way Yes, and we have worked with families who weren't able to have the funeral service that they wanted, um, perhaps on the anniversary. Mm. So mm. funeral directors are actually really good event planners. <laughs> um, and, and we don't have to have somebody who's died in a coffin to be able to, to put on a meaningful event. So, mm. you know, we have worked with people perhaps on the anniversary or perhaps at a time when people from abroad are, are coming over. And perhaps, you know, now that's the time, to, to, you know, to one of that person's lives where perhaps they wouldn't have been able to have travelled over ordinarily. You know, let, let's do something now. And we can still find a venue and we can still, you know, organise music, or, you know, live music and food and refreshments. And actually, sometimes with the benefit of time and space to plan, you know, we have been able to do that. But, yeah, mm. not everybody, you know, some people just get their head down and they carry on and and they don't perhaps mm. deal with it and and then you know do have that regret that perhaps never really goes away and you know we see that in our bereavement support groups we run bereavement support groups and we do all sorts of meaningful activities to try you know and help people to process their grief in fact um later on this year we're running some creative writing workshops um, and actually, that's quite cathartic to get some of that, mm. you know, sometimes anger about the fact that they weren't able to, you know, sometimes hurt, you know, all sorts of emotions that people have. And we do, and you know, we have annual events. So we do a walk of remembrance where people can come and um, we do a Christmas service of remembrance um, and they're open to anybody. And, you know, often what people derive huge comfort from is being around other people who believe. Mm. We don't all need specialist counselling and you know of course there is a place for that but actually sometimes you just need to hear that I'm not going to do Lally because my husband's been dead for six months and you know I still go to the supermarket and wonder what he wants for his tea yeah. you know that kind of thing and you think you're going mad but actually when you meet with other people who are also bereaved and you think no that's that's perfectly normal I do that too it's interesting because last week, Simon and I, um, we'd made a decision and, and we've been a few months in making the decision, but um, we've decided to, we were paying a deposit for a new hearse and limousine. And um, you might be surprised, a, a new hearse is um, well in excess of £100,000. And it's, you know, it was a really, really big decision and we were, you know, trying to, you know, trying to work out when was the best time to do it and how much were the interest payments going to be and all that kind of thing. And that's the kind of thing that my dad would have helped me with. Now, my dad's been dead for six years. And all of a sudden, I felt this 
really kind of like overwhelming wave of, oh, I really, really miss my dad. And, you know, and I might not have thought about him for a few weeks, you know, in mm. the early days, I used to think about him constantly, mm. um, you know, and I'd go and visit his grave. I remember the first time I went and visited his grave after the funeral and I sat there and I didn't think I was ever going to be able to stop crying ever. And, mm. you know, and, and now I go for very long periods and don't think about him at all. And then all of a sudden, you know, that things just come back and big decision buying a new hearse and. Again, it's talking about it, not yes. So, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a theme kind of running through this, isn't there? About you know, let's let's talk beforehand and let's plan, and then when it's all happening, let's talk, and then afterwards, you know, let's let's keep talking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and not just shut out the name of the deceased and not talk about yeah. them. I think it's um, that's a really important thing. Just keep talking about their memory and the things they did and. And the impact that they have on you now, I think those things are really important. Yeah. Um, just um, in, in, we were just going to talk about it, and I was just going to raise it again, which is this thing about planning. Because mm -hmm. again, I think you touched on it earlier. Um, and again, for any of listening, this this is one of those things that people sometimes feel a little reluctant to take steps <laughs> because we we have obviously conversations with a lot of our clients in the financial planning world about needing to update their will or write a will for the first time or a lasting power of attorney and funeral planning is sort of in that category of well once I start that's it um but yeah what what's your experience of people who've planned well or people who perhaps plans haven't gone or been made known uh, to others if if I you know if I could get one message out there to people, it is plan, plan ahead. And I know people don't want to, and they do feel like somehow they are tempting fate. But when you sit with a family to arrange a funeral, and let's just say there's she's got four children there, and um, let's just say mum's died, her husband's there, and their four children, and you know one of the first questions that um, we might ask is you know had mum ever told you anything about the kind of funeral that she wanted and they all sort of look at each other and everyone shakes their heads and then you say okay well you know do you know whether she wanted to be buried or cremated and they look at each other and they shake their heads and they've really got no idea at all and you know and they're lost and then one of them might say, well, I think she'd like to be cremated. And then one of them will go, well, you know, I think it'd be really nice if she was buried in the local cemetery. And then you start to get this. And if there's a little bit of friction there anyway, and, you know, and and then you get full out family kind of rifts mm. because nobody knows the right thing to do. Mm. And that's horrible. And it's not. Yeah. It, it's really, really difficult to then work with that family to put together a, a, a meaningful funeral that they're all settled about um but when a family plan and they plan well you really do see beautiful services um and even so um so we work with families with all different types of budget um and you know we also help families with no budget at all but if you plan and you've got time then there's all sorts of things that you can do to create a meaningful funeral that doesn't necessarily have to mean 
spending lots of money. You know, I can remember a beautiful tribute that someone put on top of a coffin um, and they couldn't afford lots of flowers, but they wanted something. Dad was a gardener. They put um, they got some flowers from his garden and they wove them around his garden fork and they put his garden fork on the top of the coffin in his gardening boots. Mm. You know, and actually, in some ways, that was so much nicer than like a double ended rose spray that, you know, might have cost 300 pounds. They didn't need to spend that much money um you know but they they talked about that before and they knew you know the kind of things that they wanted to reflect so you you know you get really positive um yeah really kind of positive things that that come out of planning but equally you know I'll tell you about a family that um the gentleman who decided he wanted to bequeath his um body to medical research but he didn't tell anybody he'd filled out all the forms for the school of anatomy um and had put the um the note in his will but he'd not shared that information with his wife or his children and and then when he died they were devastated because um you know the thought that his body was going to be taken away and um used for medical research and potentially um not be released for up to three years and they weren't going to have a funeral service and they really really struggled with that um, and they had to make a decision whether to honour his wishes or not. Oh. You know, and and I spent quite a lot of time talking with them. Um, and in actual fact, what happened in the end was that the medical school refused his donation because not all medical schools will. Just because you choose to bequeath your body, it doesn't actually mean that they will accept it. So in the end, um, the decision was taken out of the family's hands um, and they were able to plan a funeral service. But mm. yeah, it's just it, it just would have been easier for them to have talked about it. And actually, if they'd have involved a funeral director in that discussion, you know, then we would have been able to have made him aware that actually, you know, your first choice might be to bequeath your body, but actually if the donations refused, you might still need to plan a funeral service. So it might be yeah. worth just thinking about that and communicating what you might want that to look like and, and how much money you want to set aside and plan mm. for that. Well, it sounds like there's sort of two aspects to this. One is you might want to plan everything through in your own mind uh, about how you envisage your own departure in that way. But actually it's critical that those around you know what that is or where those instructions are saved or kept because they may have their own perception or understanding of what they think is right. Yeah. And I think also some people think because prepaid funeral plans get promoted heavily. Um, and I think sometimes people think that maybe if they can't afford to buy a plan, then they can't plan the funeral. But actually, we've worked with loads of families who have planned the funeral and they haven't necessarily paid for it in advance, but they planned it in advance. And, mm. you know, we have a file at the office, you know, with people's wishes. Um, and we always say to them, you know, you should really put a copy of this with your will as well. But, mm. you know, we'll keep a copy on our file. But, you know, you need to tell people because if they don't know that, you know, your wishes are held at Rosedale, then, you know, they might go off and organise your funeral somewhere else and and your your plans and hopes for your send-off will, you know, never come to fruition. So you must have seen some amazing 
funerals where there has been lots of thought and planning and a, a care and attention gone into it um that, that really sort of stay with you where perhaps yeah. the whole family were involved yeah um there's been some really quirky ones so ones that I've personally um kind of been involved with and seen um there was one where um this gentleman ran a plant hire business um, and um, his coffin was delivered to the graveside in the front of a digger bucket um, with the funeral director sitting on the side of the digger bucket. Um, so, you know, so that was an interesting way to personalise his funeral. Lovely. I know of um, another person that um, the family put together, beautiful funeral service, um, a burial in the Woodland Burial Park. They asked all the ladies to wear summer dresses. They put on um, canapes and refreshments there. It was a really, really beautiful service in a beautiful woodland burial park. And then um, afterwards, it came to light that actually she'd asked to be cremated and have her ashes scattered in the local churchyard. But she'd written that down and she never told anybody. Mm. So, and then the family kind of had to live with that feeling that they hadn't really fulfilled her wishes and perhaps we didn't really know her as well as we thought we knew her so one of the things that we probably ought to talk about is what it costs because people might be thinking this is all all very well um but actually isn't there a massive cost for funeral services or, or preparation and of course one of the things that we're all very aware of at the moment is the impact of high inflation and you know the impact on family budgets and so on and you know what help can they get um so one of the first things that people often don't know is that you should shop around so over the pandemic actually it was all happening at the same time the funeral profession became regulated um and we are regulated now by the competition markets authority so every funeral director regardless of the size of them have to display their prices on their website and it has to be no more than one click away from their homepage. Mm. So um, if you want to know how much a funeral costs, it's really, really easy now to find out. And there's also um, the, the CMA have this, what they call a CMA funeral. So it's a very specific specification so that people are actually comparing apples with apples. Um so it is easy to shop around, but I would also recommend you phone a funeral director because lots of people choose a funeral director based on it's the one that's near them mm. or it's the one that they've used before. So they've always used them, so they always go back there, even if they're really not very good. And even if they didn't get a very good service last time, they go back to the same place because it's, I guess it's their comfort zone and they're outside of their comfort zone. But, you know, so actually talking ahead again, visiting the funeral director, going and having a look at their premises. Don't be afraid to ask to see the place where your loved one's going to be cared for. You know, if they're a good funeral home, they won't be afraid to show you their mortuary facilities. Funeral finance is available. So if um, you want to plan a funeral service and you don't have immediate funds, then we can help people to um, source funeral finance. Um, there is also funeral benefits. So there is money available from the government um, for families that don't have sufficient funds. Um, and we can help people to apply for that. We train all our staff um, to understand how the benefits work. And um, so we can help people um, with the cost of a coffin, with the cost of a hearse, 
with the, the crematorium or the grave digger fees, even a simple floral tribute. Um, but then other things that we do um, as a company to help people. So we have actually quite a selection now of um, floral tributes that have been made out of silk flowers. We had one family that helped us and they didn't want to spend money on fresh flowers um, because they were quite um, quite into sustainability. Um, and so they had a, a floral tribute made out of silk flowers. And after the funeral, they donated it mm -hmm. for us so that we could then use it for, um, you know, to give to other families who perhaps wouldn't otherwise be able to afford flowers. So there's lots of little things like that that we can do to help families on a budget. Um, you know, and we're here to help families with budgets of all sizes or, or no budget at all. You know, we, we would never turn anybody where there's always something that we can mm. do there's always money that can be found from somewhere even if we help you set up a crowdfunder page to to pay for a funeral we can do that um and a lot of people don't know that local funeral directors also offer direct cremation so um you know anyone who watches daytime television will be bombarded with adverts about direct cremation and if they're worried about money they might think perhaps that's something that they need to consider um, but if you go to a national provider, you often don't know when the funeral is going to take place. You don't have the opportunity to attend. Um, you know, your body's often taken on a very long journey around the countryside before it ends up at the crematorium and will be stored in a warehouse, you know, with lots of other people. Um, where if you use a, a local funeral director for direct cremation, we're much more flexible and amenable and saying, look, we get that this is how much money you've got to spend. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't you can't still put together, you know, a, a service that honours the person that you loved. We do loads of work within the community. We, we do um, training for schools teachers so that bereaved children at school get the support that they need. We work with large employers in the area to help them know how to support someone who works for them who's been bereaved or indeed how to support the workforce if if they lose, you know, somebody dies that that work for them. Um, so we we work with care homes. We work with the doctor surgery, work with all those kind of people to, you know, just to encourage conversations to make sure people get the, the help and support and the resources and information that they need when they need it. You know, go and have a look at the Diane Matters website. You know, I, I guess that would be a really good starting place. There's loads of resources on there to help you and guide you to how to start that difficult conversation. Because it is, if you've never done it before, actually, you know, to find those words might be really difficult. And you've got to expect for it to be to to be shut down as well so if you start and say you know I really want to talk to you about what funeral you wanted you know the, the person is likely to say straight off oh what do we talk about that for you know I'm talking about that now and you know actually had to overcome those barriers and say well actually you know maybe not now but what would be really nice is will you think about it over the next couple of weeks and then maybe will you come for dinner you know mm. at the end of the month and and maybe will we talk about it? Because actually I worry about it and I'd feel a bit happier if we could have a conversation. It really would make a difference. It would make a difference to your funeral director and make a difference to all your friends and family who are left behind. It really is a, a, a wonderful gift if you can bring yourself to do it for them. Yeah.
Fantastic. That's a, I think that's a great way to end. And thank you so much for your time today. It's been amazing to find out about what you do. And um, people can find Rosedale Funeral Home if they look online. Is that right? Rosedalefuneralhome.co.uk. Yeah, and we're also on Facebook and LinkedIn and Instagram and, you know, all of those places. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Colin Lowe chatting to Anne Beckett-Allen all about her role within the family-run funeral business Rosedale. Now, you know, we're always looking for guests who can give us an insight into their lives and their work. So if that's you or you know of someone who fits the bill, then do get in touch. You can find us online at suffolkmoney.co.uk or you can find us on Facebook. Huge thanks, as always, to the team who produced this podcast. That's Sally and Kevin Birch and Joy Day. And thanks to you for listening. Until the next time, bye.